Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about nuclear medicine and PET scan technology with Dr. Lawrence Saperstein. Dr. Saperstein is an assistant professor of radiology and biomedical imaging and chief of the nuclear medicine program at the Yale School of Medicine, where he is also the program director of the Nuclear Radiology Fellowship. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. That is a bundle of titles you've got there. Biomedical imaging, nuclear medicine. Sounds very, very complicated. Uh, I'm a nuclear radiologist. What does that mean? Uh, Nuclear medicine or nuclear radiology is a subspecialty of diagnostic radiology. Okay. It's a little different than uh, what most people think about radiology. Um, Nuclear medicine involves uh, imaging based on physiology or how uh, structures are functioning rather than purely anatomy. When we think of CAT scans or MRIs, those images are primarily based on anatomy. Mm -hmm. In nuclear medicine, we inject a substance into patients' bodies in the vein, and they are taken up uh, differentially by areas of of the body based on function. So we're generating images based on physiology rather than anatomy. And the stuff that you're injecting tends to be radioactive, right? That's right. In essence, it is radioactive. It's a small amount of radiation. Uh, Some people think of it as comparable to a CAT scan. That puts it in a perspective uh, that patients can understand. So it's a small amount of radiation. Uh And and then you've got some camera that's counting, that's detecting the radiation like a Geiger counter, basically? Well, there, there, there is a camera, and it detects the radiation that's emitted or comes out of the patient. And from that information, we generate uh, the images. We also treat patients in nuclear medicine, uh, commonly uh, thyroid cancer. The most common forms of thyroid cancer are treated with radioactive iodine. Mm-hmm. Patients ingest radioactive iodine, and the uh, the activity goes specifically to the thyroid cancer cells and, uh, and kills the tumor cells. So nuclear medicine is a combination of, of diagnostic imaging uh, and therapy. That's very interesting. So uh, we hear a lot about PET scanning, and, and that's one of the nuclear medicine tests, right? That's right. PET scanning is becoming more and more important uh, in nuclear medicine. Uh, PET stands for positron emission tomography. I'm so glad you told me that. Right, some big words. <laughs> um, basic- I haven't done physics in a few years. Right. So uh, basically it involves, again, an injection of a radioisotope. Mm-hmm. And the difference with PET scanning is that it's a three-dimensional, a relatively high resolution, a clear image of the function of uh, bodily structures. Okay. So we most we do PET scans for a variety of reasons in uh, nuclear medicine, but most commonly for cancer. We can image um, a number of cancers. The most common cancers that we image uh, in PET scanning uh, are uh, head and neck cancers, lymphoma is a big one, lung cancer, uh, esophageal cancer, 
uh, pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer, and more recently, uh, prostate cancer and neuroendocrine tumors. That's a particularly exciting area of nuclear medicine. Hmm. Well, how does the, the PET scanning thing work? Let's say, I mean, I have patients with lymphoma, and I order a PET scan, and I get some pictures back with some bright dots. Like, what's mm. going on there? It's a great question. So the most common form of PET scan uh, utilizes the injection of basically an analog, something very similar to sugar or glucose. Okay. So the idea is that tumors take up more sugar or glucose than normal cells, and we call this metabolism. So tumors are more metabolically active than regular uh, non-cancerous cells. So we inject this analog of sugar, and it's taken up by tumor cells more readily, and they look brighter on a PET scan, and that's how we can identify the lesions. So we use PET primarily to diagnose uh, cancers and assess uh, treatment response after therapy. It can be very helpful in that sense. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating, and, um, you know, I, uh, I don't know if our if our listening audience has ever seen them, but I mean, the, the degree of detail that can be seen is, is really uh, astonishing, right? Yeah, it is remarkable. Um, and in addition, with the PET scan, at the same time, a low-dose CAT scan is obtained. So again, remember, CAT scan is for more anatomy, PET scan for physiology. And what we do is we have the computer fuse these into a single image, which is a PET CT scan, mm. and that really helps maximize the, uh, our ability to localize lesions. Mm. So we see the activity on the PET scan, and then we can determine exactly where it is on the CAT scan. We call this fusion imaging. Yeah. Well, I can say uh, out of recent uh, patient experience, uh, just to put this in perspective, we had a patient who we didn't really know what was going on, and we didn't know if there might be lymphoma going on or an infection. And uh, we did a PET scan that the person hadn't really had anything localizing symptoms-wise. And two bright spots popped up in lymph nodes in the chest. And uh, surprisingly, it turned out to be infection when we biopsied them. It was really a spectacular uh, find. And the pet, we couldn't have done it without the PET scan, I don't think. Right. You know, we're finding that PET is extremely sensitive. So we're, be, we're able to detect smaller and smaller lesions. What's interesting is it's, it also can detect infection, as you noted. So we may in the future be using it actually to detect areas of infection in patients' bodies in addition to cancer. Hmm. So how does PET, you, you, you mentioned that the, the CAT scan is more anatomic, then we have MRIs as well. Um, I mean, do you make the decision about what tests patients should have or you talk with a clinician or a clinician just decides? Yeah, in general, it's work? sort of a multidisciplinary approach. You know, a patient has a particular problem. Let's say it's lung cancer. Sometimes they work it up with a CAT scan initially. But really, uh, PET-CT is uh, probably the best way to uh, evaluate and stage uh, cancers of that nature. Mm -hmm. So it's a discussion that goes on between the radiologist, uh, the oncologist, and you know, other members of the uh, clinical care team. Gotcha. And uh, I presume that the procedures are mostly covered by insurance similarly? Yes. And we're lucky enough that most uh, cancers are covered uh, by uh, all types of insurance. At this point, it's uh, really the standard of care in the uh, imaging of uh, many tumors. Mm. So, so I think it's, you know, over the years, it's become a very important part of uh, our ability 
to uh, to image and stage tumors. You know, PET hasn't been around as long as some of those other modalities. It was actually created and uh, discovered in the 1970s, but it didn't really enter uh, the clinical arena until about 20 years ago on a regular basis. And <laughs> it's it's striking. The number of PET scans that we do every year is, uh, is really increasing. So I think the role that it plays uh, in cancer management is, is big. So where do you get the radioactive chemicals from? Um, you, like, is there a radioactive pharmacy or? Right. It has to be produced in a cyclotron. So most of these agents are produced off-site, even though we do have a cyclotron at Yale. This is like some kind of a nuclear reactor Nuclear thing, reactor right? type setup, wow. right? And the, the agents have a very short half-life. So what that means is there isn't much time between when the agents are created and when they don't have any more radioactivity. So we have to work relatively quickly. The good news is that the radioactivity doesn't stay in patients very long. So that's usually a common question because people get concerned about radiation when they're having any type of scan. Well, that really sounds scary. You know, it's really, it sounds scary, but it's not that scary. The amount of activity is small, again, kind of like a CAT scan. And by the time the patients leave the department for these imaging studies, most of the activity is out of their bodies. Now, I can tell you that I had a nuclear stress test last year and, um, uh, you know, I didn't think much about it, but when they brought the little, they brought a little vial or a syringe with the radioactivity, and it's like in a lead case and stuff. It's like, whoa, this is like right, serious right. business. You know, I think it is serious business. Imaging again deals with smaller doses. Uh, nuclear medicine also treats patients, and when we treat patients, we do use higher activities, and that's when we're more cautious. And, yeah, uh, sure. So that you know that sort of leads to uh, to a couple of exciting developments in nuclear medicine. Sure. I don't know if we have time to discuss those today. Go right ahead. Well, I think uh, more recently, Yale is a site in the recent uh, Condor study, which is a very exciting trial uh, that deals with uh, prostate cancer. And uh, an agent has been created that specifically binds to something called prostate-specific membrane antigen, okay. or PSMA. Mm -hmm. I'll try not to use too many acronyms today. But uh, PSMA is an interesting protein. It's on all prostate cells, but it's overexpressed, or it's more abundant in prostate cancer cells. So what's really exciting is this is a small molecule that binds specifically to PSMA. So we're able to image prostate cancer much more accurately than ever before. Hmm. So the hope of this trial is earlier detection and the initiation of the best therapy for patients, obviously with the goal of improved outcomes. So we're really excited about the Condor trial. So which patients are eligible for such a trial? Do they have to have a diagnosis of prostate cancer? Well, right. The, the way we're using these uh, agents now is patients who have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, so have had some form of treatment, either surgery or radiation, and then their PSA, which is a, an element of the blood that is followed closely by doctors in patients who have prostate cancer, is starting to go up. Okay, so they've been rendered cancer-free as far as anybody knows. That's right. And then there's some hunch that um, that maybe things are getting worse based on this blood test. And so you're using this nuclear test to see if you can visualize the occult cancer? Exactly. So, right. The situation is that the PSA in the patient's blood is rising. All of the conventional or standard imaging, such as a CAT scan or a nuclear medicine bone scan, are negative. Mm. They're not showing the tumor, but we know that the patient has a recurrence on some level, whether it's in the prostate area 
or outside of that. And that's really important in terms of treatment. So these agents, at least preliminarily, excuse me, have shown that they are much more accurate in detecting recurrence at a much lower PSA level and a much smaller degree of tumor burden. So it's really exciting. We can treat these cancers, know exactly where they are before uh, we earlier than we were able, ever able to do before. Hmm. Do you have any anecdotes of the kind of things that you found on this scan? Well, again, it's a trial. I understand it's a study. It's a trial in progress, but some of the preliminary data is quite striking. Uh-huh. These, these agents are, are very sensitive and uh, remarkably specific. So do you find small lesions in the bone that couldn't be picked up on a bone scan, or are they mostly finding things in the prostate? Both, actually, both. And uh, what's amazing is that the lesions we're finding are smaller than would be normally detected on any other imaging study. That's so interesting. I remember, you know, I I deal mostly with leukemia, so I don't have to, you know, isolate tumors uh, that often, but sometimes I do, of course. But I remember when I was in my fellowship training quite a few years ago, and I was caring for somebody, I don't remember what kind of cancer she had, but it was something that we used one of these markers, um, CEA, I think, is the one that we were following. And it was just going up and up and up and up and up. And we would visualize her and visualize her and visualize her and could never find the cancer until she was, you know, really almost on death's door eventually. Right, right. And I, it was way before the PET scan days. And I, I wonder, had we had uh, access to these diagnostics, whether we might have, should have been able to, to localize uh whatever was going on. That's right, right. And I think we, what we've seen is a real uh, a real change in the development of our ability to see things earlier and at a much uh, smaller size than ever before. But what is also particularly exciting about nuclear medicine is not only are we using these agents for imaging, but we're now starting to use them for treatment. And I'd love to tell you about that if we have time. Well, we might have time in the second half of the show, but right now (laughs) we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about nuclear medicine and cancer diagnostics and apparently therapeutics with Dr. Lawrence Saperstein. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable. And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Lauren Saperstein. We've been discussing nuclear medicine imaging, in particular PET scanning, uh, among others, for cancer diagnostics and research. You know, this is so exciting for me because uh, I'm not really a total geek, but I do love... Uh, you know, running by these pictures and, um, you know, that we can download, you know, on our our patients, right? You know, in the old days, which was also fun, we used to go down to the you're probably too young. We used to go down to the radiology reading room where they had all this, the you know the films from the various right. X-rays and CAT scans on these readers, and you had to go 
you know, find the grace of the radiologist to, you know, pull up your your scan and you always felt a little bad, but they were, they were always happy to show you around. But, uh, you know, nowadays we just go on the computer and we can look at the pictures ourselves, which for some things I can do. Now, MRIs, I can't do that at all. But it is pretty cool technology, I have to say, this, this uh, nuclear medicine stuff. You know, that's one of the things I really love most about radiology and nuclear medicine is constantly changing and they're developing new technologies. Really, every year there's something exciting that's coming through the pipeline. And uh, what's really wonderful is that a lot of these agents are developing into therapeutic modalities where we can use the imaging technology and harness it to treat patients with cancers. Well, now you told me about the uh, iodine story in thyroid cancer. What, what, what else is new in that? Right. So iodine has been around for a while treating th differentiated or the most common types of thyroid cancer. Because thyroid cells like iodine, they need exactly. to, make the, uh, to make the hormone, right? Right. So iodine-131 is the radioactive agent and it emits a beta particle that treats the cancer. Along the same lines, there is recently FDA-approved agent called NetSpot. NetSpot? NetSpot. Sounds like something you'd get, uh, you know, like on your, uh, on your TiVo or on your uh, Roku. That's right. You'd, you'd get a NetSpot at some app. Well, I'm, I'm always well, amazed how they come up with these names. I think the NET is really uh, derived from the fact that it images neuroendocrine tumors. What is a neuroendocrine tumor? Right. So neuroendocrine tumors are uh, uncommon tumors. Uh, the most common type that we see is something called... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, carcinoid tumor. Okay. And uh, what it is, it's an agent that binds to the somatostatin receptor. And I know I'm using a lot of uh, big you time. <laughs> Let's keep it simple. So neuroendocrine tumors express the somatostatin receptor. So they want to be like they want to be like gland tissue, right? They want to be like endocrine gland tissue kind of? That's right, partially. Yeah. Right. So uh, what we have now is this net spot compound that uses, a, again, a small amount of radioactivity and binds specifically to these tumors so we can see them more accurately than ever before. So net spot is another imaging agent. Gotcha. To find these carcinoid tumors. That's right. And if I recall, these carcinoid tumors, they have all sorts of weird effects on people. They make them have diarrhea and flushing and they're very difficult to live with. They're not they're not so terribly malignant, right? right? But they but they really wreak havoc on a person's life. They can. And they can be challenging to treat. Yeah. So I think that's the real breakthrough. So now that we have NetSpot to image these tumors, here comes another one. We have Lutathera. 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 Okay, so Lutathera and NetSpot together really comprise a very exciting area of nuclear medicine called Theranostics. Okay, and let me explain that. That's not like something you go to like Sedona, Arizona and get some new agey Theranostics. Right. So Theranostics is a term that was coined by combining the words therapy mm -hmm. and diagnostics. I see. So there we have Theranostics. But what's really exciting about Theranostics is that we can take the binding site that we use for imaging, change the radioactive compound to something that can treat patients rather than image them, and we're treating them specifically with the Lutathera, which kills the cancer and doesn't really harm a lot of the tissue around the cancer. And this is an FDA-approved drug as well? This is the first FDA-approved agent of, uh, of this nature. Huh, interesting. And we're doing this routinely yeah, now in patients. 
But, uh, you know, so I think that is a particularly exciting area of nuclear medicine, which I find fascinating. So is this like a one-time thing you get? Like you, you get treated once and you're done? Or can you be retreated? Or how does that work? Well, there is a protocol for Lutathera. Right now, we're treating patients four times every eight weeks. Four times right, like so once a week? or Every eight weeks. So they're getting four doses to, separated by eight weeks. Gotcha. I see. So uh, one dose and then another treatment two months later like that? That's right. Okay. That's right. And then then what happens? Well, that's a great question because since we've just started doing this, we're still in our first round of treatments. Mm -hmm. So uh, patients have responded very well. And, uh, you know, hopefully they won't have to have another course of Lutathera, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And are they able to get retreatment with Lutathera if the numbers start getting worse or you can only treat people You know, I think once. the jury's still out on that. These uh -huh. are, you know, again, insurance does cover Lutathera. They are expensive treatments, but it is the first FDA-approved agent of this nature. So I think we'll just have to see. Now, that's very interesting. You know, during the break, you and I were talking about, uh, you know, an area in which your group um, coordinates with our group for very resistant leukemias. And uh, and in a study called IOMAB, patients are getting uh, radioactive antibodies that basically wipe out the bone marrow in the right. context of a stem cell transplant. And I, as I was telling you during the break, uh, in in I sent some patients out to Seattle where this was originally developed quite a few years ago um, when they were early in the development of this agent. And I, I know of at least one patient who's probably cured 10 or 15 years later. So it's it's really cool. That's another iodine-based. That's uh, right. Uh, would that be considered a theragnostic or? You know, I think it would be a form of theranostics, right. Because so, <laughs> so, they have to get imaged first too, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. So the imaging defines the extent of the tumor. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we swap out just the radioactive particle from something that's used for imaging to something that's used for treatment. It's interesting. And, and for the leukemia, that's very important because the leukemia is all over the body and they want to make sure, I guess, that you know they're not delivering too much radioactivity to sensitive areas like the liver or something like that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you know these types of dosimetry is the word we use. It's the amount of radiation that normal tissue is exposed to. So right, these these have been worked out, and really there's not a lot of uh, damaging effect to normal tissues in the body. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know Lutathera is here. What's particularly exciting is that this is really just the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know we're going to harness the power of this modality to hopefully treat cancers in a way that they've never been able to be treated before. Hmm. So do you have anything next on the horizon that you can tell us about? Well, actually, yeah. Moving uh, along with the Condor trial, which is an imaging trial. Which that was that about. prostate one. Right. So that one binds to prostate-specific membrane antigen. There are agents being developed, again, not to image, but to treat prostate cancer. So we are about to initiate a trial which uses the same concept but just treatment rather than imaging. Mm -hmm. Same idea as Lutathera, and it's linked to the uh, small molecule that binds to PSMA, which is overexpressed or more abundant in prostate cancer cells. So really, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful, exciting time in nuclear medicine, and uh, you know, I'm thrilled to be involved with it on this level. I have to say I'm disappointed in the choice of the condor for something for the prostate. I might have preferred platypus or porcupine. 
Yes, that's uh, that would be reasonable. I think you should give them feedback about that. The last study we did was the Osprey trial. Too. Uh, really? So, yes. Uh, so does, is it the same company? Same company. So they like they like birds of prey. I think they like birds of prey. And Osprey are particularly nice for Connecticut. Is that right? Well, there's a lot of osprey here. <laughs> At least in Brantford, we get a lot of osprey in the in the right season. But yeah. uh, you know, it's really like a brave new world of nuclear medicine. It's a it's a revolution, or you know, it's wonder. It's a really exciting time, and uh, you know, the hope is that patients will really do well with these new agents. Well, it sounds to me like uh, to do your job, you need to understand a lot of physics, right? You know, there is a decent amount of physics in nuclear medicine. I would hate that. Yeah. I like physics, really, physics, but it's hard. I think it's interesting. For me, the, the, what I love most about radiology and uh, nuclear medicine uh, are the images. Mm -hmm. You know, just the— you No, know, I was saying the same thing with the geekiness, you know. The, just a, more of a visual aesthetic. way of looking at disease. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, now it's really, it's really fun and exciting because we get to interact directly with patients. And, uh, you know, we've seen great results with these compounds. So, uh, so it's very exciting. So do people who are going into nuclear medicine, do they have to do a regular training in diagnostic radiology to start? Or? Most people go through a, a standard diagnostic radiology residency. So it's one year of internship in either medicine or surgery or subspecialty, uh, four years of diagnostic radiology, and then most people do at least a year of a fellowship. And in this case, it would be a nuclear radiology fellowship. I see. And they've probably had some exposure to nuclear medicine during their Radiology residency? Yes, nuclear medicine uh, training is part of the curriculum for diagnostic radiology residency. Interesting. But that extra year, just sort of, they're inundated with more you know, nuclear medicine scans and PET scans and therapies, so they're ready to, you know, take the helm. A year is enough, huh? It doesn't sound like a year would be enough. <laughs> We're busy. <laughs> <laughs> and do people in nuclear medicine uh, sub-specialize sub then? I mean, are there some people in your group who do more one thing or another, or are you all kind of generalists You know, we right all now? are able to read uh, and interpret nuclear medicine studies on all levels. We all treat patients. You know, everyone has their, their little niche. Um, some people are more uh, inclined to, to, to study uh, cancer therapies and uh, imaging. Others maybe neurological diseases. Another big area is uh, the, the evaluation of uh, dementia patients. That's something that's developing really? in nuclear medicine. Huh. There are a couple of agents that are very helpful in the diagnosis of dementia. What's that like? Can you tell me anything about that? Well, basically, uh, the, the clinical diagnosis of dementia is difficult sure. and inexact. Um, so there are agents we use. One of them is the glucose analog that we talked about before, which right. can show typical patterns with Alzheimer's disease. Really? And there are other agents that bind to a protein called amyloid yeah, in the I've brain. Yeah, heard about that. And those can be very helpful in diagnosing uh, Alzheimer's disease. So nuclear medicine really runs the gamut of, uh, of medicine with cancer, uh, heart disease. Those are done by the cardiologists. Uh, neurologic disease, and uh, all the physiologic uh, processes in the body. Interesting. And you mentioned that Yale has a cyclotron. Is What's that used for? Well, Yale has a dedicated uh, pet research center. Oh. And uh, they're doing amazing things down there, um, discovering and developing novel uh, tracers that can bind disease. Uh, they work with uh, humans and animals. So it's really a, a remarkable facility. I'm more involved with the clinical arena yeah. in the Smilo Cancer Hospital. But, you know, I only have wonderful things to say about the pet center. It's, it's truly amazing. Huh. And they're in your same department then? They, in their, they are in the Department of Radiology and Biomedical. But it's more of a, it's more of a... A research center. 
Yeah, but you're doing research as well, but it's more of a Basic sort of developmental science. research. Right, right. Yeah, I've, I've driven by it, but I never knew what it was really. So thanks, thanks for enlightening me about but, this. Uh, yeah, I feel really fortunate to be involved in this uh, in the treatment of these patients and uh, these exciting technologies. It's really so, a thrill. So when you've given a treatment uh, like the Lutathera or any of these things, uh, do patients come back uh, for follow-up with you, or do they, are they just followed by their oncologist? Well, it is a multidisciplinary uh, follow-up. They're seen by their medical oncologist, a GI oncologist specifically. We see them uh, when they return for their therapy. But most of their medical care is done by the uh, medical oncologist and the follow-up. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you really don't know necessarily how much of your work is reaping benefit, right? Well, actually, that's a good point. We do have regular meetings with the multidisciplinary uh, tumor board, and we discuss these patients to see exactly how they're doing. Dr. Lawrence Saperstein is an assistant professor of radiology and of biomedical imaging and chief of the nuclear medicine program at the Yale School of Medicine, where he is also the program director of the Nuclear Radiology Fellowship. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.